0: Die Gedanken sind frei. Kein Mensch kann sie raten. Sie fliehen vorbei in nächtlichen Schatten. Kein Mensch kann sie wissen. Kein Jäger erschießen. Die Gedanken sind frei. I learned this song, Die Gedanken in Frey, after I was liberated from the concentration camp. And it is about freedom freedom of thought, freedom of movement, freedom in general. And it's very meaningful because everything can be taken from you, but your thoughts cannot. They are yours forever to share with whom you choose to share them with.
1: So here's what happened. I met Gidon Lev and nothing was ever the same again. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. things I didn't think about before I met Guidon. For instance, in my mind's eye, there was Europe before World War II, tumultuous but sophisticated, cultured and European, that ineffable superior quality we Americans adore. Then there was Europe during World War II, a kind of hell with billowing black smoke and lines of tanks and concentration camps. Then there was Europe after World War II, cafes, fountains, and cathedrals of historic grandeur. Why did I have such images of post-war Europe as a glamorous place to go, when in fact, Europe was devastated in every respect for years? With the post-war rebuilding and innovation in Europe, optimism in America, and worldwide hope, a new era of consumerism and tourism was born. Hollywood films showed American audiences romantic images of Europeans sitting in cafes, riding Vespas, and smoking insouciantly. It was an image cultivated to encourage tourism and economic growth. An American could be forgiven for buying into this hopeful, glamorous vision. The truth was that Europe had to be rebuilt, and several international organizations we take for granted now were formed post-haste. The UN, United Nations, UNICEF, UN International Children's Emergency Fund, WHO, World Health Organization, and the World Bank were just a few. Indeed, under the U.S. Marshall Plan, the United States sent more than $12 billion in foreign aid to Europe. Another thing I hadn't noticed before was that World War II and the Holocaust were often understood differently in popular culture. For some, World War II occupied the foreground with places and names like Dunkirk, Normandy, and Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler, and General Patton. The war brought up visions of muddy battles, tanks, bombers, ruins, and rations. The Holocaust was the horror happening in the background. It was different. It brought up images of corpses, ovens, barbed wire fences, and ominous chugging trains full of terrified, doomed Jews. Names such as Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Eichmann, and Hermann Göring, and places like Auschwitz and Treblinka came to mind.
0: We didn't know in the camps, especially as children, how terrible it was in the other camps in the East. Fact is, we had no idea that there were death chambers, gas chambers, burning people, shooting people, and so forth. Only after the war ended did we find out how horrific it was with Gables and Goering and Eichmann All these horrible people organizing it and setting it up and destroying us all.
1: How did it come to pass that one conflict, which exploded into thousands of conflicts and acts of brutality and war across Europe, Africa, and the Pacific, could be seen as separate narratives? Wasn't the Holocaust synonymous with World War II? And what was the Shoah, anyway? I was not familiar with the word Shoah until I saw French director Claude Lansman's epic 1985 film by the same name. Shoah, a documentary of 556 minutes, is considered a masterpiece and was hailed widely by critics. Roger Ebert wrote of the film, quote, It is not a documentary, not journalism, not propaganda, not political. It's an act of witness. End quote. I saw the film at UC Santa Barbara. It was shown in three-hour increments over a period of three days. I remember emerging from the dark theater into the bright California sunshine and feeling a sense of deep disconnect and sorrow. The sunshine and palm trees outside could not wash away the first-person testimonies and long shots of railroad tracks that had been projected on a screen inside. Shoah is a Hebrew word that means catastrophe. Over time, many Jews have come to prefer this term to the word Holocaust which comes from the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint and dates back to the 3rd century BCE. Scholars agree that Holocaust means holy burnt and refers to a burnt sacrificial offering. The word Holocaust was first used to describe the Hamidian or, in modern terms, Armenian massacres perpetrated by the Ottoman Turks from 1894-1896 to Although many believe that a word that implies an offering is unsuitable to describe the Jewish genocide, the Holocaust has become synonymous with the murder of six million Jews and millions of others at the hands of the Nazis. Gidon felt it was important to show me the place of his birth, his flight, and his imprisonment. Of course, he was right. We made plans to go to the Czech Republic. We were to fly to Prague, stay for a few days, then travel to Carlo Vivari, and finally, Tarazin. Though Gidon had twice been back before, in 1989 and in 2008 with his family, this time his feelings were complicated. Maybe he intuited that he might never see these places again. Or perhaps he was nervous about whether the places he had described to me in such detail would be as he said they were. The plane we boarded at Ben-Gurion International Airport held all the usual suspects—crying children, harried parents, and young travelers. There was also a group of about 20 yeshiva. Orthodox religious students from Brooklyn who'd been studying in Israel. Oh, great, Gidon muttered darkly as we took in the black-clad group of youths. Moments later, we discovered that our seatmate was one of the Yeshiva boys. He and Gidon had a pleasant conversation about Prague and Gidon's history. I was relieved that the topic of Jewish religious observance did not come up. There is a curious and often painful divide between secular and religious Jews in Israel. This is sometimes expressed with secular Jews feeling that the very religious, i.e. the ultra-Orthodox, are backward, superstitious, and intolerant, and with the ultra-Orthodox viewing secular Jews as having abandoned what they see as the basic obligations of being a Jew. Gidon's family was like many Jews living in Central and Western Europe before the war, entirely secular and very much part of their local culture. Gidon did not have a ritual circumcision, bar mitzvah, or any of the typical rites of passage for male Jews. In fact, he didn't realize he was Jewish until he was in a concentration camp. After the war, Gidon never considered a Jewish religious identity for a moment. For him, being a Jew meant building a country. Religion had nothing to do with it. That said, and although the ultra-Orthodox make up only about 12% of the population in Israel, many argue their political influence is outsized. A familiar source of friction within Israel, the argument for many comes down to who's a Jew or who's Jewish enough? Prague, Praha in Czech, is one of the top tourist destinations in Europe and for good reason. Gidon proudly showed me the towering spires and fairytale buildings, which, he observed with some wonder, had been significantly renovated and beautified since the fall of the Soviet Union. This was the Prague that Gidon remembered and loved. Like other European capitals, Prague has a long, windy history of kings, invasions, destruction, and rebuilding. It struck me as a city where the cool kids live—artists, writers, and intellectuals. Prague is a city in which one could linger for weeks, going to museums, reading novels, and sitting in cafes, soaking up the atmosphere as the sun slips over the pointy buildings and creates deep shadows. There are plenty of shadows in Prague.
0: Things began to change very quickly after my family arrived in Prague in 1938.
2: Almost immediately, restrictions restrictions on on the Jews Jews were announced. Jews, young and old, had to wear the yellow Star of David on the left side of their chest. Later I learned that these stars were available for a sum of money in every postal and government office and, adding insult to injury, we were required to buy them for ourselves. Not wearing it was punishable by death. Soon after, Jews were forced to follow a curfew and to be home at 8 p.m. All bank accounts belonging to Jews were confiscated and became the property of the Third Reich. The same went for safety deposit boxes, no matter what they held. Jewelry, cameras, typewriters and especially radios of any size were to be handed into to the authorities. Even public transportation was restricted for us, including where we were allowed to sit if we were lucky enough to get on a tramway at all. Every day, it seemed there was a new ordinance.
1: On our second day in Prague, Gidon and I made our way over the cobblestones and through the crowds to the Pinkus Synagogue in the old Jewish quarter. A synagogue dating back to the 16th century. Today it's run by the Jewish Museum. Inside the synagogue museum is a permanent exhibit of the names of the estimated seventy eight thousand Czech Jews murdered during the Holocaust. The names are written according to village or region, regions with Habsburgy names such as Moravia and Bohemia, in the country then called Czechoslovakia. It took Gidon and me only a few minutes to find the names of his father and grandparents. Nearby, the yeshiva boys we'd seen on the plane were gathered in a circle and singing a traditional song of grief and mourning in Hebrew. Their voices rose above us and echoed. I tried to photograph the family names inscribed on the wall, but I couldn't zoom in enough on the names that were relevant only to Giton. There were just too many. Round and round the walls, the names went. Outside the Pinkas Synagogue is the Old Jewish Cemetery, which is one of the oldest Jewish cemeteries in Europe. Enclosed by walls and crammed into a relatively small, stony, mossy place, it radiates with a jagged and solemn atmosphere, packed with gravestones, peppered with stones, which are the traditional Jewish expression of the permanence of memory at a gravesite, rather than flowers that wilt and fade. There in the cemetery, Gidon and I came upon the yeshiva boys yet again. Our airplane seatmate recognized us, greeted Guidon warmly, then looked directly over Guidon's head. You guys, he called, come here, quick. Gidon had told the young man a bit about his history on the plane. Only a moment later, Gidon was surrounded by the eager and awestruck faces of the boys. So, where's your number? one asked, gesturing to Gidon's arm. Gidon explained that it was only at Auschwitz where Nazis tattooed numbers on the arms of prisoners, and that, furthermore, children sent to Auschwitz generally did not survive to show their numbers anyway. A few other tourists overhearing the conversation listened in. Gidon loved the attention, but I saw his energy flagging. We bid our goodbyes, and Gidon stooped to pick up a branch that had fallen on the ground and used it as he walked away, regally. The yeshiva boys and tourists stared after him. As we made our way back to our hotel, we passed by the old, new synagogue, Europe's oldest operating synagogue, completed in 1270. Legend has it that in the attic of the synagogue, there is a box containing the body of the golem. The golem is a figure from a centuries-old Jewish myth. It is a powerful, avenging creature made of mud, with superhuman strength and an inability to speak. If this sounds at all familiar, it is because the myth of the golem was famously borrowed by Mary Wollenstone Craft Shelley, as the tragic character of her novel Frankenstein, as well as dozens of other literary works, including The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabin. The Golem has even been associated with the Gingerbread Man and a Slavic myth called the Clay Boy. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's
0: really very interesting that before we started writing this book, of ours, I had no idea what was and what is a golem. And to learn something new while you're writing, that's fantastic. I'm really, really happy. And it really is part of the Jewish story
1: unknown to me. The golem in the attic has a purpose, it lies dormant until it is brought to life to protect the Jews from pogroms. A pogrom is a massacre that takes place when a violent mob enters a Jewish neighborhood or village and sets fire to and destroys everything and everyone in sight, with guns, knives, and even bare hands. There is rape. There is murder. Pogroms were an unspeakably horrible and regular fact of life for Jews living in Europe for centuries. The Golem is a legend that arose from sheer desperation. Legend says that if one wrote the Hebrew letters Aleph, Mem, and Tav, truth, on its forehead, the golem would come to life and obey whoever commands it. Erase the Aleph on the golem's forehead and what remains is Mem and Tav, death, and the golem stops until further notice. It was interesting, I thought, that truth brings life and that death is only temporary. Outside the old new synagogue, shops did a brisk business selling Gollum cookies, keychains, magnets, and other Gollum-shaped tchotchkes. Naturally, I wanted to buy something Gollum-related, but Kidan was ready to go. We dined at a cafe along the Valtava River, overlooking the Charles Bridge, surrounded by tourists and souvenir shops. There, we had a view of the huge, many-spired Prague Castle, which overlooks the Vltava River and all of Prague. The castle, the seat of power for the kings of Bohemia since the 9th century, once had an unwelcome guest. On March 15, 1939, Hitler spent the night there and reportedly looked out over Prague, his latest conquest, with pride. The previous day, Czech President Emil Hacha had suffered a heart attack when he was informed that if he did not agree to allow a complete Nazi takeover, Prague would be bombed. Perusing the café menu, distracted by the horrible idea that Adolf Hitler himself had also been in Prague, I thought about a terrible fact. Before the war, approximately 92,000 Jews lived in Prague. Today, there are about 5,000.
2: There were five of us who lived in this small flat on Italska Street. I shared a bedroom with my grandfather because my grandmother was very ill and needed her own room. I remember going to kindergarten and being sick quite often, with colds and sometimes a fever too. When I stayed home from school, I would sit at a small table, sewing little garments for my doll while my mother worked on hats for her clients. My mother had gone to a millinery school when she was growing up, and this was her profession. And it helped us to survive, since neither my father, and even less so my grandfather, could find work because nobody would hire Jews. We lived close to a lovely playground where my grandpa Alfred would take me from time to time. I remember the swings there, one in the shape of a canoe, which I particularly loved. One day, I came home from kindergarten to find my father terribly aggravated and angry with my mother. It was my mother's regular practice to air out our bedding on the windowsill every day. And that day, one of the pillows had fallen down to the street. My father had run down the four floors of steps only to find an elderly lady who had picked up the fallen pillow. After my father thanked her profusely, he had come back upstairs with the pillow. And only then did it become clear to my mother why he was so upset. My father had hidden all of my parents' money inside that pillow.
1: Atowska Street is in what is now an up-and-coming neighborhood in Prague with cafes, a yoga studio, and frozen yogurt shops. But the building at Italska 7, although not lacking in character, was not as well kept as the neighboring buildings. I took a picture of Guidon on the steps of the building, wearing his backpack, looking curiously like a child as he peered into the glass front doors. Inside, a Czech janitor was mopping the floor disinterestedly. He caught sight of us and opened the door, a cigarette dangling from his lip. I tried to explain that Gidon used to live in the building long ago, but the janitor only shrugged and continued working. I wasn't sure how Gidon was feeling or how he was taking all of this. He seemed cheerful enough and was energized to be in Prague. But I didn't want to prior project my own feelings onto him. I just wanted to let him be and allow him to show me his past without expectation. Was there a way Gidon was supposed to be feeling? It wasn't for me to judge. It seemed to me that Gidon had told his story so many times throughout his life that he'd become accustomed to it. I've seen him weep, overcome with joy, or with sadness in unexpected moments, maybe because of a sad television commercial or an old song. I get it. Some things are too much to think about directly, even when they're right in front of you.
2: Public parks were only for Aryans, and so were public playgrounds. My grandfather could no longer take me to the park, where my favorite canoe swing had once lifted me away from our dark reality. The German Gestapo entered the homes of Jews without the slightest warning or provocation. I was fearful of any knock on our door and would hide in the darkest corner of our apartment, lest it be the feared intrusion of the Gestapo. If they did find something, they not only confiscated it, but the entire family was taken away, never to be heard from again.
1: Ignoring the sulky janitor, I took a picture of the stairs coming down to the lobby. Long ago, a six-year-old Gidon and his mother clunked down these very stairs with their suitcases and rucksacks on a cold autumn morning in 1941, obeying orders to report to the train station. In
2: 1941, a new announcement came that said all Jews would be resettled in Terezin a village and army camp from the Great War just 55 kilometers north of Prague. The first two transports would be men between the ages of 18 to 50, who, if they volunteered, would be joined by their immediate family within a few weeks. Hearing this, my father and grandfather signed up. Just before my father boarded the train, he came to visit me in the hospital. I had just had my tonsils removed. So here I was in the hospital and could not even say goodbye to my dad. He gave me a big hug and brought me a smerslina, ice cream, the only thing I could eat. I couldn't speak at all because it hurt so much. He said he would be okay, assuring me that we would see each other again soon. I didn't quite understand and was very sad, but later my mom explained to me And thinking that we would soon be together again, I calmed down, somehow.
1: Suffocating dread must have crept up slowly on Gidon's parents and so many others. The small humiliations, the arrests, the yellow stars... The posters pasted on the city walls and lampposts, ordering the Jews to do this and that, no longer allowing them in this park or that cafe or on this bus. The appearance of German soldiers sporting their gray uniforms, marching down streets and over bridges. The wondering where the neighbor went or if the neighbor talked. The pulling down of the blinds at night. The radio announcements. Going out to shop with clipped ration cards. Trying to live when your bank account has been confiscated by the Reich. The knock on the door, the order to report to a train station, the dread, the disbelief. What do you pack? Bring your valuables, they said, and something warm.
2: Within 10 days of my father's transport, my mother and I received a notice from the Germans that we too were to be shipped out to Terezin. I remember being quite happy. Aha, the Germans are keeping their promise, and we are going to be reunited. I helped my mother pack our suitcases roll up our blankets, and we arrived at the central Bahnhof with all our personal belongings by 12 p.m. the next day, December 12th, 1941. It was sheer madness. What to take, what to leave behind. How much can we carry? What about the blankets, sheets, pillows? Warm clothing? Winter things? Which shoes? How much and what food? For how many days? We took as much as my mother and I could carry and hoped for the best. We were motivated by our fear of the Germans and the hope that we would be reunited with my dad and granddad. It is hard to imagine something like 500 women and their children all camping out in the train station hall on the bare floor. We were one on top of the other. Every centimeter accounted for. It was my first encounter with hell on earth. I tried not to cry and even be helpful to my mother, who was most of the time aggravated and tense. For two days, we slept there, ate whatever we had brought with us, stood in hour-long lines to relieve ourselves, and somehow also kept warm. It was, after all, December. The middle of the winter and bitterly cold.
1: How frightened Gidon and his mother must have been. What did Doris tell Gidon and what did he really understand? I wondered if I could have kept my cool with my kids. Doris had no real idea what her future held. Peeking out from behind the last building on the block, only a half a block away, were a steeple and lush green treetops. Was that the same part Gidon remembered? We walked over, and sure enough, there was the small park his grandfather Alfred used to take them to. The square, called Niemeste Miru, is presided over by the towering Church of St. Ludmilla and lined with neatly clipped grass and flowers. The playground is gone. We sat on a bench and I made small talk with a grandmother with her grandchild in a stroller. The baby had so many teeth. There was something else Gidon wanted to do while we were in Prague. We took a taxi to the new Jewish cemetery, which was only a few minutes away. This lush, sprawling, stately cemetery is where Franz Kafka is buried, and we beelined to see his grave, which was festooned with stones, poems, and other remembrances from literary tourists. But that's not why we were there. We were there to find the grave of Guidon's grandmother. Teresa, or Teresi as she was affectionately called, was Gidon's paternal grandmother. She'd passed away a few months before the first transport started and was buried in Prague. In some ways, I thought she was spared. She never made it on the transport to Terezín with the rest of the family. Had she done so at her age, she likely wouldn't have lasted very long. Her husband, Alfred, was dead within a year after his arrival there.
0: My grandfather died in the concentration camp. And he must have suffered greatly because he had some stomach problems and there was no medication and therefore he must have been in great pain and passed away. I loved him dearly.
1: Therese's resting place is toward the back of the cemetery, along with other people who didn't have elaborate grave markers or family plots. On a past visit, Guidon couldn't find his grandmother's grave. There was too much snow on the ground. But not on this warm summer day. The ground was musty and loamy, covered with ivy and leaves. The cemetery was quiet as their want to be. The dense foliage of trees created scattered patterns of moving sunlight over the graves. Gidon and I had the crinkled paperwork showing us which part of the cemetery Therese was buried in, and in which plot. But even with the help of a tall, silent cemetery worker in dirty overalls, look as we might, we couldn't find her grave. We searched for over an hour, scraping dirt and ivy back from marker after marker. The cemetery worker apologized and ruefully disappeared back over the vines and into the trees. Gidon sat down on a bench, full of emotion, but silent. It's a pity, he said finally. On our way back out of the cemetery, Gidon and I noticed memorial plaques along the cemetery walls. On them are the names of family members killed in the Holocaust. No exact dates of death, but the years of transports and the camps they were sent to. Treblinka, Auschwitz, Dachau, Belzec, Maidenek, and others. What a miserable consolation of places to die a horrible death. As we passed by the office of the cemetery, I was inspired to push for more information. Maybe we could show the man in charge our paperwork and ask again. There had to be a way to find Terezi. Gidon might never have this chance again. The nice man in the office spoke to Guidon in Czech and in German. A few words in English were thrown in, too. How could this be, we asked. We knew Gidon's family had salvaged at least some resources when they fled to Prague. We knew that they buried Gidon's grandmother here. The man explained that at the time Gidon's grandmother died, Jewish burials were done quickly and secretly. Jews didn't want to draw attention to themselves. Later, he went on, during the 40-year Soviet rule over Czechoslovakia, religious institutions, and especially Judaism, were under an officially sanctioned hostile policy, so synagogues and cemeteries were neglected and fell into a state of disrepair. Only in recent years were the more remote sections of the cemetery being cleared and help offered to locate graves for those looking. What the man didn't mention to Gidon and me, and perhaps he didn't know, was that in the early 1980s, over 100,000 Jewish headstones were looted by the Soviet regime to revamp Wenceslas Square in the center of Prague's historic district. In May 2020, as Prague set to again revamp and restore this large public square, Jewish headstones were discovered. They had been taken from Jewish cemeteries in Prague and broken into pieces and used as paving stones. Gidon and I had spent so much time on our hands and knees looking for Therese's headstone, thinking we would find it under the ivy. In reality, she might have been right under our feet, and under those of thousands of tourists the whole time. Gidon and I hopped on a vintage-seeming trolley car back toward the part of Prague where we were staying. Very quickly, we realized that we were on the wrong trolley and wound up on the other side of the Valtava, the side that had not been spruced up or revamped for tourists. Here, the buildings and streets were slightly dilapidated and bore the brutalist stamp of the former Soviet occupiers. We sat in a cafe, ordered ice cream, and watched a miniature street sweeper clean up the detritus of the recent past. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. You can learn more about Guidon Lev at www.thetrueadventures.com. And be sure to follow Gidon on TikTok. Special thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Kroom and Adi Goldstein. Todah Rabbah Eliran for being the voice of young Gidon.